Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I know it's been quite a while since I was on the air last, but I am glad to be back on the air. I'm sure some of you are beginning to wonder, when in the world would Kirk Monroe get back on the air? Well, the good news to report is that today is that day. Well, I will say that uh, since the last time I was on the air up until now, um, I'm still uh, always amazed at the results that come in. And I don't say this to flaunt by no means, but it is good to see um, upward results. No matter how big or small they are, the upward results are great. It's not just from this podcast uh, topic series that we're doing. It's from all the other ones that we've discussed. It just goes to show you, it, or rather I should just say, rather I should say, it just goes to show that um, no matter how much you know about a particular topic, or no matter how much you didn't know about a particular um, historical um, matter or a person, let alone, it seems like all of you have gained more than what you had previously known before. So, hats off to all of you. Now, I know that sounds a little cheesy, but you know it is worth. Um, celebrating because you know too often we hear in the negative about what people don't know that they ought to know about and while that can be discouraging uh, nonetheless I am glad to know that all of you have taken an interest in what I've been able to share with you all um, regardless of the uh, podcast uh, book topic series uh, that we've done so uh, the last time I was on the air when we talked about uh, men of uh, men of patriotism, courage, and enterprise, uh, Fort Meigs in the War of 1812, we were um, getting to the uh, climactic point as to when uh, Fort Meigs would be about to get attacked. It is fair to say that General William Henry Harrison knows that an attack is imminent. He has learned uh, or obtained intelligence from prisoners not just uh, prisoners, um, but perhaps um, locals as well, both, um, both sides, prisoners and locals, whom have advised him that an attack is imminent. It, they don't know exactly what day it's going to be. It could be a week from now. It could be a couple of days from now. But the bottom line is that an attack is imminent. So in this um, podcast, or I should say in today's podcast segment, uh, topic discussion or episode, uh, we will learn more about how the British advance uh, goes forward and when exactly come late April they do go about attacking Fort Meigs. But what I can tell you this much is that, um, you know, when we hear, like, for example, a fort or an army being attacked, it may not all automatically mean that it's a full scale onslaught. It may not mean that by being full scale that everybody uh, from a whole um, troop force is um, going to be present in launching the attack. It could be that the party launching the attack right away will only send half of their men out or send out a detachment that is to engage perhaps in uh, skirmishes, perhaps um, set, catching the opposition off guard to where regrouping can be a little bit more of a challenge. So, you know, somebody has to, um, how do you call it, someone has to throw the first stone, I guess, or someone has to throw the first uh, punch, or someone has to be the first to ignite the um, 
the greater conflict. So uh, I think it's almost that time to uh, get the show on the road. But before I do get the show on the road with um, today's uh, podcast segment episode, I just recently uh, finished a book written uh, by uh, Ralph James Naveau. I don't believe many of you all would have even uh, known of this individual. I didn't know anything about him until I read the book uh, titled as follows, Invaded on All Sides. The War of 1812 and Michigan's Greatest Battlefield Engagements at Frenchtown, a.k.a. present-day Monroe, Michigan, and the River Raisin. Quite a phenomenal read, uh, to say the least, and and I mention it because I know that I had uh, talked about uh, Frenchtown and the river, including the River Raisin, in some uh, previous uh, podcast segment episodes. But uh, what I would strongly recommend for all of you who would, uh, who are eager to learn more about the War of 1812, especially in Michigan, read this book, Invaded on All Sides. Uh, about um, the War of 1812 and Michigan's greatest battlefield engagements at Frenchtown and the River Raisin. Uh, this way you'll get a better understanding of just um, of uh, how, um, on one hand, of how victorious uh, Tecumseh, including um, the British forces, uh, were. Uh, that is, both British and Indian joint forces uh, coming together. But also, um, you will get a better understanding of just how um, terrible this loss was for the Americans, but also how a greater sense of um, humanity at stake. In other words, I know I mentioned to you all uh, from a previous episode about how um, a number of American troops were massacred. A number of American troops not only were taken prisoner, but, you know, Many of them probably died as prisoners. Uh, some were released, but it also should serve as a reminder of the inhumanity part. And I know one could say, well, you know, the Europeans obviously were not nice to the Indians, so some people would say that maybe some Europeans got what they deserved. And I'm not here to engage in anything political, but we often have to be reminded even when those who emerge victorious don't always um, abide by the rules. You know, the British, you know, made the excuse that, well, you know, we can't control the Indians and and their um, brutal tactics. We'll try to do our best to ensure that those whom were not able to come to uh, Fort Malden, that is, who were wounded, will, if they have to be, if they are left behind, we'll just see to it that they are looked after as best as possible. I don't really see that effort ever having been made, and plus two, uh, there were many, um, even within the British side, those whom were more uh, pro-British, whom actually had empathy for the American prisoners. So it just goes to show you that even uh, those whom come away victorious will have some within their camp who may not share the, the uh, victory um, at a full 100% uh, level. In other words, if there are prisoners of war, how do they get compensated? How do they get treated? And if they are not treated properly, then how can we really celebrate a true victory? But anyways, uh, nonetheless, this was a great read, and I uh, strongly recommend um, any of you who are wanting to learn more about the War of 1812, the War of 1812 in Michigan, uh, read "Invaded on All Sides." You won't regret it for one minute. But anyways, I think it's time that we uh, hit the show, or rather, I should say, get the show on the road. 
with this um, next uh, podcast segment episode to Men of Patriotism, Courage, and Enterprise, uh, Fort Meigs in the War of 1812 by Larry L. Nelson. So here we go with our first leadoff question. Did British Colonel Henry Proctor go about officially launching the attack against Fort Meigs come April 24th of 1813? There are a lot of uh, things, um, you know, that we learned from the last uh, podcast episode. A lot of uh, things taking place in uh, April lead up to uh, the inevitable. But the answer to the question is yes. However, while British Colonel Henry Proctor did go about officially launching the attack against Fort Meigs on April 24th, it had nothing to do in the form of violence erupting. In other words, Colonel Proctor did not... Um, engage in the following soldiers present your arms make ready take aim fire no he didn't do anything like that however let's um go behind the scenes and get a better understanding of exactly how colonel henry proctor did go about officially launching the attack against fort meggs come late april colonel proctor uh, from what i learned he spent up to a month gathering troops and supplies at Fort Malden. Well, you know, it does take time not only to acquire supplies, but to assemble troops. You know, remember, folks, we don't have telephones, so, you know, Colonel Proctor can't call up, you know, 3,000 miles away or let alone to another um, British uh, post along the Great Lakes, I should say, and say, hey, I, I need you all to uh, recruit X amount of um, soldiers whom would be willing to join my um, troop for troop unit or troop force uh, in this uh, upcoming uh, expedition to uh, Fort Meigs on the American side along the Maumee River. So, yes, um, gathering troops and supplies, not just for short-term but long-term purposes, is a challenge onto itself, even if, if this is taking place within a one-month span. It's challenging, let alone if you're going to engage in the enemy, say, three, three months out. But to do all this in a month's time, yeah, it's, this is around the clock 24-7, in my, in my opinion. Now, in order to get from um, Fort Malden to uh, the Maumee River, there's only one way you're going to be able to go. And that is by uh, fleet, or I should say by uh, vessels, a.k.a. This is going to be a fleet, a fleet of vessels, folks. Another word for fleet is a flotilla. So the British fleet that will be making its way to uh, Fort Meigs comprises of the following. There's one brig known as the Lady Prevost. And I believe that would be named after um, Sir George uh, Prevost's uh, wife. There were six vessels of identical size. Then you had two gunboats named the Eliza and the Myers. And then there were multiple flat bottom boats. Now I'm sure some of you are thinking, what's unique about flat bottom boats? Have you ever heard of bateaux? I know I have, and whenever I think of bateaux, um, I usually think of bateaux uh, that would have been making their way along the James River. Now, uh, I do know that, um, not to get off subject here, but I'm going to use this as an interesting um, 
example with regards to bateaux, and that's spelled B-A-T-E-A-U. Uh, some people add an X at the end, a silent X. But uh, when Thomas Jefferson was alive, he often, at t there were times that he would um, have uh, supplies sent to his estate at Monticello via the Ravana River. But the Ravana River uh, posed um, its share of problems. It was too shallow of a river. So there were times when Jefferson did not have um, consistent success along the Ravana River in getting supplies uh, sent to him due to the fact that the water was so shallow. So when Jefferson, um, when his uh, retreat of being a poplar forest in Bedford County was officially uh, completed in 1806, being uh, the being America's first octagonal home. Believe it or not, it, 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 historians know that uh, Poplar Forest in uh, Bedford County, Virginia, just on the outskirts of Roanoke, was considered to be America's uh, first octagonal home. When Jefferson would go to Poplar Forest to get away from from the endless barrage of guests at Monticello, because he never really got the true privacy there, and he got he had more privacy at Poplar Forest, and, of course, from Monticello to Poplar Forest, that took about a three-day uh, journey. But nonetheless, uh, Jefferson uh, had better success uh, with the James River nearby to where uh, bateau boats could uh, transport uh, goods from east to west and vice versa. And Jefferson rarely ran into any issues because the James River was, was more uh, steeper than, say, the Ravana River. So that's a, a good uh, example there with regards to um, bateau, um, flat-bottom boats. But anyways, these um, flat-bottom boats, being the bateau, uh, transported, including the uh, six vessels of identical size, the two gunboats, um, the one brig, and uh, the, all the uh, vessels that I've just mentioned of this uh, flotilla, these uh, vessels... Um, will be uh, the ones that are trans that are uh, leading the way in transporting the British expedition from Fort Malden down the Detroit River and across the um, and across Lake Erie towards the Maumee River's entrance. Now I just realized too there was something else I forgot to mention to you all uh, right before we began with the leadoff question. I know I mentioned it from the previous episode and I didn't want to forget because I promised you all I would give you all the answer. There is uh, Fort Gratiot in uh, Michigan. Well, it just so happens that it is named after uh, Captain uh, Charles uh, Gratiot, who um, was responsible for overseeing the uh, construction of Fort Meigs. So there's your answer, folks. So uh, nonetheless, I'm glad that I was able to remember that because I know many of you were probably eager to know uh, if, in fact, Fort Gratiot was named after uh, Captain Charles Gratiot, and what do you know? It is true. And I'm sure some of you are wondering now, with all these vessels that were just um, mentioned, uh, yes, some of them has, have names and others just by the numbers. How many uh, men are, are making their way into, um, how many men are a part of uh, Colonel Proctor's force? Colonel Proctor's force, folks, consisted of 522 regulars, with the majority coming from the 41st Regiment of Foot. 
There are 462 Canadian militiamen. By land, uh, this would have included a small group of Indians along with volunteers from Detroit and the River Raisin areas. Did an advance party of mounted British and Indian scouts make their way across the Maumee River from Fort Meigs on April 26th? It just so happens, folks, that the answer is yes. They went as far as spending a great deal of, a great deal of time surveying Fort Meigs, including the North Bank for where they could go about placing their artillery batteries. Well, you have to wonder now that the British and the Indians have um, this advanced party comprising of British and Indian scouts. It seems like they've gotten a, um, a good start on, on uh, trying to figure out where they could launch their attack on the opposite side and go about inflicting uh, wounds upon the fort that could have um, long-term devastating effects. But the presence of British and Indian scouts was detected right away by American forces. Well, that's a good thing. And if, and if they have been detected right away, which has been the case, wouldn't you think it'd be fair to say that American forces would take quick action? Well, I hate to tell you this, but some confusion has set in. On one hand, an alarm did get sounded by the guardsmen. But it also resulted in one of the artillery uh, crew going about firing an 18-pound cannon upon the enemy. On one hand, there may not be anything wrong with firing a cannon, you know, that is cannon shot at your enemy. But at the same time, if you fire too much, too many rounds, is it fair to say that you have uh, just wasted ammunition? Yes. And is it fair to say that there could be some likelihood that the ammunition might not be replaced or it might not be considered replaceable? Yes. On the other hand, it was it important to be on the offensive uh, for, um, for the Americans? Yes. But had there not been so much confusion, I think that um, it could be fair to say that maybe um, the 18-pound cannon um, – the artillery crew would not have gone about firing. Probably what should have happened was that soldiers should have been, um, should have gotten positioned somewhere where they could have uh, fired uh, back. Uh, but, in, but in terms of firing back, you know, firing is a warning. That's just my thinking. Of course, I'm not in the military, but that's just my approach. However, there is good news to report, and that come April 27th, uh, the day after, Colonel uh, Proctor's, well, I don't, well, let me take it back. I don't think there's, this is good news, folks. It just so happens that on April 27th, Colonel Proctor's fleet sailed to uh, Swan uh, Creek, 13 miles uh, northwest of uh, Fort Meigs, where he joined up with Indian warrior leaders from Tecumseh to Roundhead, including a 1,000 Indians, which brought Proctor's total number to just around 2,400. Well, the good news might be that if you're on the side of the British and on the side of the Indians, then you would be pleased with these numbers. But if you're not on their side, 
then yes, you do have to take into consideration with the addition of um, of a thousand Indians, along with um, addition of other uh, troops, but mostly the the one thousand Indians that will obviously increase um, Colonel Proctor's um, forces. Uh, Colonel Proctor, come the evening of April 27th, dispatched out another party to canvass the American position at Fort Meigs. This guy is really staying on the offensive, and, you know, he's going to do whatever it takes to find that weak spot. And once that weak spot can be um, exposed, and if the Americans aren't careful, it could, uh, it could have some deadly consequences. So how was the American response to the British scout mission come April 27th? Okay, this is where the good news lies in if you're um, on the side of the Americans. Uh, the Americans were more readily prepared versus the previous day of the 26th. They went about uh, placing all artillery batteries along the stockade, which enabled uh, crewmen to immediately launch fire against the British scouting party, whom earlier detected American troops fishing along the Maumee River. So it almost is like a game of cat and mouse where one side sees the other, one side is trying to find the weak spot. The other side um, is trying to improve upon uh, what they had um, done from the previous day. And now um, the Americans have been smart enough to place all of their artillery battery along the stockade so that no matter what direction the attack could come from by the British, the Americans will have an answer regardless of what side the attack um, begins from. British troops um, returned with a shot of fire, only to retreat. But the second barrage of American cannon that was uh, fired upon the uh, British troops resulted in killing one to two enemy troops. So both sides are testing each other out. They're testing one another's waters. And this go-around, sadly, it did meet with... Um, some, with minimal loss of life, but as a reminder of what can happen even when you are testing one another's waters without going full force. Uh, what did Captain Hamilton of the Ohio Militia perform the day after come April 28th? Well, he led a small group of troops upriver from Fort Meigs to determine the overall um, size of the British troop force. You know, it's, it's one thing to lead a group of troops, and it was wise for Captain Hamilton of the Ohio Militia to to uh, go about just to go about sending a small group of troops because if it's you know it's one thing to be to to be detected. You know, yes, you you as the commander could be caught along with say fifteen or twenty troops, and while that could be a um, a bad loss, it would almost be better if say. 15 to 20 troops were caught versus, say, 500, I think you would have a much more difficult time replacing 500 troops who all of a sudden become prisoners of war versus, say, 15 or 20. That's just my opinion. But nonetheless, uh, Captain Hamilton has led a small group of troops upriver from Fort Meigs to determine what is exactly the overall British uh, size in terms of their numbers.
Captain Hamilton uh, confirmed uh, British forces stood anywhere from around 1,500 to 2,000 strong at max. And when he, uh, con- when he spotted uh, British forces, they weren't just sitting around twirling their thumbs doing nothing, folks. He would have um, spotted them from a distance to where, obviously, he would not want to expose himself or the troops under him because if they all were exposed by the enemy, then it's a matter of survival and you know time's not on your side. So if you're going to stake out the enemy, you've got to make sure that you can be as well disguised as possible so that you um, blend into your surroundings with, that are around you. But by doing so, you will reduce your chances of being caught by the enemy. So anyways, uh, yes, Captain Hamilton did confirm that British forces stood around 1,500 to 2,000 strong, and uh, he uh, was able to report to General Harrison that, that the troops that he, um, that he uh, observed were engaged with unloading uh, men whom had come over from uh, Fort Malden in Ontario, including their artillery and equipment around the remains of what would become Fort Miami. This is where the British, um, for the Americans, their main uh, bastion or fort is uh, Fort Meigs. For the British, their main bastion is Fort Miami. General Harrison, after learning of Captain Hamilton's intelligence findings, immediately sent messengers from Fort Meigs with a warning of British invasion to um, areas of from uh, Upper and Lower Sandusky, including Franklinton, where Governor Meggs was uh, stationed, for whom the fort's named after. General Harrison also went about having Captain William Oliver send an urgent request to to, uh, Brigadier General uh, Green Clay and the 1,200-man relief team or unit from Kentucky, which uh, Green Clay uh, was uh, commanding. So in other words, you know, Brigadier General Green Clay and his uh, 1,200-man relief team need to know as soon as possible how they need to know as soon as possible what they're going to be going up against when they um, arrive. Because, you know, you think you have all this time to prepare. Sometimes you don't. You never know um, how long it might take before you can make it to where you need to be to be ready to go at any moment's notice. So I think it's fair to say that General um, Harrison would have sent out uh, courier riders whom would have um, been able to have provided uh, other officers whom were on the way en route with with the commanding uh, force to be prepared at any moment's notice for what could lie ahead. I think it's fair to say that we should uh, think of courier riders is our uh, version today of um, hotshot carrier drivers or um, who whom can um, provide something in an expedited manner is of course you know back in those days I don't think we could have had anything that resembled guaranteed service but courier riders were truly to me probably the earliest form of something that would be considered time critical 
Uh, General Harrison went as far as placing all troops at Fort, at Fort Meigs into three work parties. Each party, folks, would be required to work an eight-hour shift. Well, 24 hours in a day, folks. One party, um, you know, is on the uh, clock for eight hours. The next shift comes in, and then you got that last shift as the final leg. So, hey, three, three work parties. Each party gets an, uh, an eight-hour uh, work shift. So what do you think is going on during this time? Well, a lot of things could be going on, but a big thing that uh, General Harrison's going to do, and this is smart, he's going to request that tents on site get placed on the British side of new works. In other words, there are, there are some new works going along at Fort Meigs, but he wants the tents placed facing the direction of where Fort Miami stands. There are some new uh, traverses, or I should say, uh, structures. The, the structures being built need to be protected. And so by placing the tents on the British side of the new works, these structures not only are protected, but, they, but the exact location and the current state of progress is protected as well. Because if the British can uh, spot whatever new um, works are going on, well, what, what could they do, folks? They could um, place their cannons in a proper position, fire, and inflict uh, damage upon the new work. And not only just damage upon the new work, but hinder any means of um, properly protecting Fort Meigs. Exactly how many rounds of ammunition did General Harrison have uh, readily available for Fort Meigs? Well, I can tell you this much, you know, the number I can give to you, it may seem high, but if I were to tell you all that it was low, then there's a reason for it as well. So the answer to the question, exactly how many rounds of ammunition did General Harrison have readily available for Fort Meigs, most notably that given that he had um, anywhere from, a, a, he had one or at least a couple of 18-pound uh, cannons. But the answer with regards to rounds of ammunition is just 300, is 360. Again, you know, 360 seems like a big number in terms of uh, rounds of ammunition. But it actually turns out, folks, that it is a very small um, number. So in Harrison's eyes, given that he sees this as a small number, in terms of rounds of ammunition, he's going to instruct that his artillery crew, or his artillery crews, I should say, only fire the 18-pound cannons sparingly. Sparingly, another word for sparingly, being limited. In other words, okay, if the British fire back with their cannons, should we automatically fire back with ours? Well, if you want to do that, that's one thing, but if you know you're if you know that the ammunition that you have is limited, don't waste it all. Because if you waste it all, how are you going to defend the fort? you, you got to think long and hard about it. So between April 28th to April 30th, American and British armies w went about coordinating to planning their defense strategies. Each side tested one another's waters in the midst of working on the final stages to fortifying the posts. Some casualties were confirmed, folks. 
The evening of April 30th saw both British gunboats, the Eliza and Myers, come close to the Maumee Rapids entrance where they fired at Fort Meigs. However, uh, the good news, though, is that despite the fact that, yes, the bad news is that the um, Eliza and the Myers, given how close they were to the Maumee Rapids entrance when firing at Fort Meigs, the good news is that there were no um, that there was no damage done. But nonetheless, uh, these two gunboats uh, firing is a, is a sign that hey, look, we can start this uh, battle at any moment's notice. But if we start it, we're going to have the upper hand. By uh, May first, eighteen thirteen, were both sides ready for combat? Yes. General Harrison went as far as requesting that the tents protecting the fort structures be struck by the enemy, only to get relocated elsewhere, mainly for the fort's interior. So, in other words, if the tents get struck right away, that's okay, but we'll just relocate them elsewhere. May 1st saw British artillery crew fire, or I should say launch, shot and shell from 24, 12, and 6-pound cannon, including 8-inch mortars. How many rounds, or I should say total uh, rounds, um, got fired by British artillery into Fort Meigs throughout May 1st? 240, folks. That's a pretty high number. And if that's um, challenging enough, you've got um, Indians... They are harassing American troops from the rear. So the U.S. Um, or the American side engaged in firing back, but only on a limited basis. Remember, folks, if you're the Americans, and yes, you only have 360 rounds of ammunition, you can fire, but it's sparingly. It's got to be on a limited basis. We need to conserve what's left so that we have another day, uh, another day's fight, or perhaps another two days' fight with um rounds of ammunition uh, from a cannon perspective. And, and the same can be applied even for muskets and rifles because, you know, even um, ammunition for muskets and rifles could have been limited. Yes, fire. You know, fire upon the enemy, but do it when you know it's right, it's the right time to do it. Just don't do it at your own leisure. Don't do it just to, you know, get a little payback right away. So, yes, the U.S. forces did engage in firing back, but doing so on a limited basis. May 2nd, 1813, the British remained steady with their attack by engaging in throwing forge, in throwing forge heated red-hot cannonballs directly at Fort Meigs' powder magazines, where, where the gunpowder would have been, uh, perhaps muskets and rifles, other... Um, essentials uh, in terms of um, defense uh, mechanisms. Fort Meigs' two magazines were well built. That's a good thing, and how so? Well, their walls were below ground, and, they, and it turns out that the um, magazines were made from double timber. Regular firing from British gunners did gradually go about uh, tearing away at Fort Meigs' overall structural protection. So, yes, it's good to know that the magazines are well built, but that doesn't mean that they aren't going to take some hits. 
to where over time the uh, wear and tear of the overall structural um, makeup of the fort could come into um, question. It could uh, come into uh, some kind of, um, I don't know if I'd say danger is the right word, but it could come in into um, into question as to, okay, if more firing uh, happens, how much longer can the fort um, take in terms of a beating before something truly terrible does go wrong where um, where the likelihood of a um, complete um, structural collapse happens. So we've got a lot of what-ifs here that we're dealing with. Uh, did American forces, per group of volunteers, go about repairing the damage brought on by British cannon fire to Fort Meggs's magazine station, or should, in this case, maybe stations? Because obviously if there are two magazine stations, chances are um, both would have been um, hit. So, believe it or not, folks, repairs did take place, and it just so happens at one of the magazine stations, repairs took place in the midst of a bombshell falling upon the magazine roof. Now, can you imagine trying to um, partake in uh, repairing um, or in making the necessary repairs at a magazine station while all of this firing is going on, and now all of a sudden a bombshell has fallen upon the roof. And you've got a really big dilemma here, folks. Who, I mean, who's going to go up and fix this problem? I'm sure you've got a lot of men uh, panic, in panic mode. I'm sure you've got a lot of men who might not even know how to um, diffuse the situation to where, um, diffuse the situation to where, um, to where the worst case scenario uh, can be avoided. And the worst case scenario that they're trying to avoid, folks, is um, is the roof from, uh, say, completely collapsing. Well, one man within the volunteer group got access to a boat hook. He went about bringing the hissing bomb to the ground, and he removed the burning fuse from its socket. This man... Uh, was able to help avert the worst case uh, scenario from happening and the um, magazine's roof it remained intact folks had it not been for this man's quick thinking we could have been looking at a whole different story not only a collapsed roof but uh, some loss a greater loss of life uh, what did captain elizor uh, wood pursue in regarding british advancement via gun battery uh, 300 yards east of Fort Meggs come uh, May 3rd. Captain uh, Wood ordered that short structures, in this case being the traverses, be fortified within the fort. The new uh, traverses, or I should say the structures, just so happened to be intersected at right angles to those uh, traverses built at the battle's uh, beginning, uh, making the fort's um, inside more secure from uh, likelihood of direct enemy firing, most notably uh, volleys from left and right sides. So, you know, it's always easy to think that, well, the attacks will come from the center, but at the same time, we have to be reminded of what can happen 
if we don't have our sides protected, you know, from left to right. So in other words, enemy uh, can um, engage in a volley. That is, they can have, you know, at least 10 or 12 soldiers lined up next to one another with their um, muskets, uh, which could, you know, get them about uh, 50 to 100 yards. Uh, rifles um, can get to about that 100-yard mark or a little bit uh, further. But by placing everybody um, shoulder to shoulder and firing at your enemy 50 to 100 yards away, the goal in this case is going to be to, um, you know, maybe knock down a couple of soldiers, but to inflict some damage on the fort's uh, interior and uh, exterior uh, components. Reinforcements from what state arrived onto the outskirts of Fort Meigs come, day, come the day after being May 4th? Uh, Kentucky. I tell you, Kentucky folks seem, Kentucky folks, I should say, seems to be this one state that is really leading the way in getting and um, bringing its fair share of um, soldiers whom are willing to fight uh, what they think is a noble cause. And the reason I say that is because those uh, whom were living in Kentucky, especially politicians, were considered war hawks. Being war hawks, they uh, were very, very uh, pro-war. Uh, they uh, they were adamant about going to war with England. They were adamant about um, about ending impressment. Not that the Federalists were opposed to impressment on the high seas, but the war hawks were very, very um, dedicated to this uh, cause and wanting to go to war and be able to... Um, end all the hostilities as quickly as possible, most notably um, hostilities being impressment along the high seas. But, you know, it's one thing to wish for wanting to end hostilities, but hostilities alone just don't come to a halt, or the, uh, the ending of hostilities, I should say, don't come to a halt overnight. It takes time, and oftentimes it has to take a war to sometimes end those hostilities. Hey, you know, we did try with that infamous Embargo Act of 1807, and did, did, it, get, um, did it get us anywhere? No. Britain still kept impressing our sailors. So no matter how much legislation we passed, it still wasn't enough to deter um, Britain, being the aggressor, from stopping uh, the practice of impressment altogether. So anyways, uh, Brigadier General Green Clay had 1,200 men under his command. General uh, Harrison came up with a very, very brilliant plan. He uh, decided to split up uh, General Brigadier General Green Clay's 1,200-man force into uh, two parties where 800 men would get landed along the north bank where they would attack British guns to piercing their cannons. And what I mean by piercing their cannons is basically um, causing uh, damage to the cannons to where the British would not be able to launch um, cannon shot directly at uh, Fort Meigs. So they would go about piercing their cannons with um, various uh, sharp uh, points at their disposal. As for the other 400, they would go to land on the south shore upriver from Fort Miami and fight their way to the camp. A group from uh, Fort Meigs would attack 
and silence uh, British gun structures along Fort Miami's eastern side. These are uh, quite, this is quite a um, bold, ambitious uh, plan here, to say the least, folks. Just how exactly did plans for American forces proceed come May 5th, 1813? Well, they were altered, but for the better. You know, sometimes when we hear plans being altered, sometimes that does not always sound like a good thing, but um, I think it's fair to say that sometimes when we do alter plans, they can be for the better, both short and long term, regardless of the circumstances. Brigadier General Green Clay uh, went about dividing his force per uh, General Harrison's game plan. So, um, you know, Brigadier General Clay isn't going to um, overstep the boundaries, but he's going to uh, divide his force per the game plan that Harrison has uh, come up with, which to me is a brilliant one. Clay, um, Brigadier General Green Clay would oversee the group ordered to land along the south bank while a colonel by the name of uh, Colonel William Dudley, whom was second in command, oversaw the journey to the North Shore. Prior to dawn on May 5th, Brigadier General Clay proceeded with a two-pronged, or I should say a two-tier assault, even folks as heavy rains broke out. I don't know how in the world he was able to do all this, because when... When uh, inclement weather like rain comes about, it can obviously have a very negative impact. It can um, mess things up to where your army may not simply be able to advance. And if they are able to, um, if they are able to do any kind of advancing, it would be limited. But even um, advancing alone in rainy weather does have its, um, it does have its repercussions. Uh, supply wagons get um, stuck in the mud. There's no place for shelter. I mean, think about it, folks. There's no hotels. So, and who knows where the closest tavern would be. And even if there was a tavern nearby, I don't think the tavern would be able to cater to everybody. Might be able to be, be lucky if the, the tavern might be lucky if they could cater to just shy of 100 or less than 100 men. Uh, it just depends on how big the tavern itself is. But the bottom line is, is that, you know, even weather itself can have a, um, it can have all kinds of uh, repercussions in a, um, for an army's uh, mission. But the good news here, folks, is that um, Brigadier General Green Clay is proceeding forward. He's not going to let the heavy rain stop him. And, and the same would go for Colonel William Dudley. Some of us would say they're crazy, but sometimes you have to take crazy risks even when um, Mother Nature doesn't cooperate. And I know I mentioned from a previous podcast about how uh, George Washington had to take a crazy risk, but it was a risk he knew he had to take. Otherwise, he would not have had a Continental Army that would um, be available come spring 1777, um, as we know, the Continental Army was on the brink of collapse. Uh, it was on the brink of being extinguished had it not been for the uh, spy that gave Washington that um, spot where he uh, launched his um, infamous attack being Trenton in 1776, where um, Washington's forces um, 
routed uh, Colonel Johann Rawls um, Hessian um, force of a, of a thousand strong. Uh, but the bottom line is the mission was victory or death. I don't think we've gotten it here just to this point yet, uh, but the risk that uh, Colonel Dudley and Brigadier General Clay are taking is one that is um, risky considering that, for one, it's during the wintertime, but two, when it's not in the wintertime, folks. It's in the spring, forgive me, but even in the spring, you know, the weather can wreak havoc in the form of rain. So, anyways... Uh, we, there are uh, flatboats. There are 18. That's the total number of flatboats for the mission at hand. Uh, Colonel Dudley led the first 12 flatboats, whereas Brigadier General Clay led the remaining six vessels. And despite the swift current, uh, the direction that the water was moving, or the, the direction or direction that directions that water is moving, which can be very quick. Dudley's landing went smooth, considering they did not get detected by the enemy. If you if you can be avoid if you can avoid being detected by the enemy, then that's definitely an advantage to your side. Because once you get detected, it's a matter of life and death in a short matter of time. Once on shore, Colonel Dudley divided forces into three parallel columns. These columns did not um, they were. Technically, they were nearby one another, but they never um, actually uh, physically intersected. Dudley himself led the right wing. Uh, the center column was led by Major James Shelby, son of Kentucky Governor Isaac Shelby. And then a small group was led by Captain Leslie Combs on the far left side. Heavy rains were uh, persistent, and because they were persistent, Colonel Dudley had to, um, he had to rethink um, some stuff, and he had to do it in a short matter of time. When, when you're um, in marching mode or when you are um, advancing towards the next, um, I don't know if I'd say destination or towards the next um, spot of your um, military uh, campaign, you have to think about um, multiple, multiple factors. But if the weather is not cooperating, one thing that would come to my mind is the well-being of your um, provisions, or I should say supplies like muskets and rifles. If water infiltrates your muskets or your rifles, pistols, whatever, um, whatever you may have on you as a means of uh, protection, if water gets into the inside of those, um, gets into the inside of um your musket, your uh, rifle, or your pistol, you're not going to be able to fire it. it, it it's it's going to uh, have a negative um, negative impact. What what other um, contraption might you have on you that could be of uh, significant use in the midst of um, heavy rain? That would not um, you would that you wouldn't have to worry about, but you would not have to uh, deal with um, in regards to saturation. So, given that muskets and rifles have are already saturated with water, what would Colonel Dudley advise that his troops um, do instead? He advised uh, his troops to partake in the um, advancement charge made with bayonets. Okay, yeah, you can get bayonets can probably get rusty 
for various reasons, but but bayonets will still be able. Uh, bayonets are still um, good. In other words, they're still going to work effectively even if they get rained on versus your muskets and rifles. So, Colonel Dudley's uh, wing is uh, on uh, is making some great strides here, folks. They've they've obviously gone undetected. There. His wing made their way unnoticed by British troops where they became the ones raising loud Indian-style yells or rally cries by, ch by charging the batteries to routing gun crewmen, rupturing 11 cannon to cutting down British flag colors. They just went on a uh, rampage here, folks. And all of this was achieved without any American troops losing their lives. To me, this was a this was a gutsy call. This was a great way for the Americans to strike the first blow. Yes, both sides were testing each other's waters. Yes, the British had sent uh, their own scouting parties, including the Indians, to in engaging in some harassment. But to me, I personally think the, that the Americans have launched the first successful uh, strike. Uh, for this uh, campaign of Fort Meigs. So, yes, no loss of life. Troops within Fort Meigs, including those along the North Bank, are all cheering jubilantly with multiple huzzas, huzzah, huzzah, a.k.a. hooray. Why not? Well, I have to wonder... With all this instant success, how much more success could uh, Colonel Dudley's forces achieve? At some point, the British will have to counter-respond. But at some point, you have to wonder, what about the other two wings? What about um, Major Shelby's wing, given that he heads the center column? What about... Um, Captain Leslie Combs on the far left side. What are they going to do? Are they going to see any kind of action? Are they going to have the same kind of results? Well, I do know this, that um, that uh, when I'm on the air again next, we will have to talk about um, that um, those elements. We will also have to uh, find out we will have to find out where exactly uh, Colonel Dudley's forces go uh, going forward in the midst of their um, unprecedented success that happened at such quick lightning speed. Well, thank you for your time as always, and I look forward to being back on the air with you all. And uh, no matter where you all live, uh, continue to stay safe. Take care.